0: hello everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot i'm matt risby good evening and joining me as always for the miracle of satellite technology he is afraid he is alone he is three million light years from home it's ed davis how the devil are you sir
1: I'm very well, thank you. Now I know these are always films. <laughs> okay. That sounds like it could be a T. The only thing it makes me think of is Farscape, the Jim Henson co-produced or Jim Henson Company. Jim Henson was long dead at that point. Uh, TV uh, sci-fi series from the '90s, which basically has that exact premise. So I'm going to guess that or Red Dwarf.
0: I mean. It's a very famous... You are you do suck at this game, Ed. We'll, we'll both be <laughs> honest. I mean, it's a very famous film. It's a very famous tagline. It's E.T. Oh. Yeah, you, you were thinking Is about... Is it a very a human... famous tagline? You was sorry? Is it a very famous tagline? I think... It, I mean, what, what's the tagline for it? It's not like, oh, there's a small weird guy in a shed. Eat Reese's Pieces. <laughs> <laughs> look, at, look at Small Drew Barrymore. Yeah.
1: Mm. That famous... The most famous of all taglines. Small Drew Barrymore.
0: Mm, yeah, I like Weird Alien Guy in a Shed. I think that's <laughs> more Spielberg's crippling fear of divorce told via Aliens. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, e. T. do you like E.T.?
1: I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I liked it a lot as a kid.
0: Mm, yeah, I never really liked it as a kid. He used to freak me out. I didn't want him touching me with his finger.
1: He is the most repugnant creature who's ever been turned into, like, a stuffed toy beloved by millions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not, it's saw... not
1: like the minions who are like a, you know, kind of a, an easy, clean design that everyone can just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's non-threatening. He does look weird.
0: Mm, just like a kind of a skinned cat mixed with a ball bag. Just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just hiding in a shed, as I've all mentioned. But I never, I never saw the um, the, the kind of, you know, the digital remaster with all the, the extra bits in. I never saw that. That looked like a terrible idea.
1: I think that may be the only version I've ever seen. Really? Yeah, Oh uh, no, I, I would have seen the original. The, the digital one didn't come out until like the early 2000s. It was after
0: 2001 because they changed some of the stuff because of 9-11, I believe. They right. They replaced the FBI's guns with walkie-talkies um, no. and other things. Yeah,
1: so I've only seen the unedited
0: version then. Uh, okay, yeah, well, it's probably Bobbins. I know that Steven Spielberg has disowned it he? He as an like, I had to watch that as crap. Um, but I'm glad you guys paid money for it the last time around. Um, <laughs> what's going on in the news this week? We have had uh, some trailers drop this week, some very exciting ones. We've got one for Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which, you know, you and I both like, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 1. Uh, what could go wrong with 2? It seems to be uh, the same kind of uh, hilarity ensuing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it looks fun. All the characters people love are back. Groot's now tiny and looks very cute. Mm-hmm and they do a nice inversion of the original dynamics cuz now he's climbing on rockets back instead of the other way around mm-hmm. which is which is very cool and and sweet and yeah i'm i'm looking forward to it uh, although i was talking to someone at work about this this week and saying that the greatest enemy for the film now is its prequel its its predecessor mm-hmm. cuz the first one Came out and was like a real pleasant surprise for people. It didn't really, other than the Marvel name, it didn't really have anything to kind of make people think, oh, this is going to be terrific and like one of the biggest hits of the year. And now it's following a film that was terrific and one of the biggest fil- hits of that year. So it's really kind of competing against itself, which is uh, a game that's very hard to win.
0: Mm. Yeah. I'm kind of tentatively excited for it. I hope they can kind of repeat the success without looking like they're trying too hard because that was what mm. was good about the first one It all seemed quite natural and, and easy none of it seemed forced
1: yeah and you'd kind of hope that james gunn would be obviously more confident because he's got the success kind of behind him now but not be overwhelmed by it and it's very hard to maintain that balance between thinking okay i've got this and oh shit, so much is riding on this now.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We also had the uh, Spider-Man 6 trailer, <laughs> I think. Was it Spider-Man Homecoming? Yep. Which is a really shit name for a film.
1: It is terrible, although the they also announced that a sequel is forthcoming, and it's currently called Spider-Man Homecoming 2, which I ideally hope changes, because that would be even worse.
0: Homecoming 2 but... what? <laughs>
1: The streets. That's always the answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man, homecoming, to home. <laughs> to home, to homecoming. Um But yeah, I mean, that's... To home, to coming. Uh, Let's get the yeah.
1: obvious uh, sequel name jokes out of the way.
0: Yeah, why not? Um Yeah, I mean, and also that reminds us that there's also been the, the Fast and the Furious. The eight has got a name which is called Fate of the Furious, which is criminal waste of, of their kind of tradition of numerical stupidity by... Not being F8 of the Furious.
1: Yeah, although it does continue their uh tradition of making it absolutely impossible to order those things alphabetically. <laughs> yeah. And in the order in which they were released. Those uh, are entirely separate uh ways of doing it. Uh but uh I'm I'm looking forward to that purely because those films have kind of a, a dunderheaded charm that I find I find really appealing, but also They've added Helen Mirren and Charlize Theron to the cast, and I can't I can not not see how that turns out.
0: Mm, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's a baffling... I mean, Charlize Theron, obviously, off the back of um, Fury Road. That's got cars in it. That's got action in it. That was well received. But, I mean, Helen Mirren... I mean, what's her action credentials? Like, Red?
1: And Red 2.
0: Yeah, the Red franchise.
1: I think she fell over in Prime Suspect once.
0: Mm, she stood up quite quickly in The Queen.
1: Yeah, yeah, all this great stunt, she does her own stunts.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Um, but yeah, I'm yet to see a Fast and Furious film. Um, We did briefly toy with the idea of me having to watch all seven and do a kind of podcast on it like we did for the Twilight films, but, I mean, no one would want to hear that, that would be terrible.
1: Well, it'd be terrible for the first kind of hearth, Mm. and then at some point Stockholm Syndrome sets in, as it has with the entire world. Mm. including me i really like the like the latter <laughs> the latter fast and furious films but uh yeah i do have to wonder how much of that is just being worn down <laughs> by their existence and the fact that they just keep happening
0: mm. it's weird isn't it how like in, we've talked about this before but in the old days sequels used to be you know the laws of diminishing returns you always used to get less uh kind of receipts for sequels and it used to be not as well received no matter what they were uh, kind of across the board, but now that's completely changed and for a for a franchise to suddenly kick into gear with its fifth installment is absurd,
1: especially uh oh, and for a franchise to have seemingly driven itself into the ground after the first three films where each one made less than the previous one and seemed to have like exhausted all of its potential to suddenly become a massive juggernaut grossing hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide is just something you wouldn't expect to see in, in a way it's kind of like the less critically beloved ver- uh, cousin of the mission impossible franchise which followed almost exactly the same <laughs> pattern of uh each installment being less liked or successful than the previous one and then around the fourth film suddenly uh kicking back into life in a major way
0: mm. yeah yeah i mean that, i mean that's what do you think that's down to? Do you think that's down to the Tom Cruise appeal or do you think that they they just know what they're doing and they do it pretty well?
1: I definitely think it's down to the, the Tom Cruise appeal and it coming at the right point in his career in that it was, the first one was a major hit when he was the biggest star in the world, as was the second one. The third one did okay, but seemed to be derailed by all of his hit Scientology, jumping on couch stuff, which was going mm. on around that time. Uh, and the fact that he became something of a social pariah uh, and the fourth one came out once that had kind of died down and people had stopped really paying attention so his his uh enthusiasm for it and the fact that he hires the right people you know the fact that he is the auteur of that series in many ways and he's the guy he's he chooses the people he wants to work with and he chooses pretty well uh it's kind of a big part of it i think
0: mm, mm absolutely what are we doing this weekend? Uh, what are we going to be talking about and why?
1: Well, we're going to be talking about goodbyes in film and television, because uh, this is your penultimate uh, t- appearance on the show for, uh, for a while, at least.
0: Yes, I will be uh, gallivanting around the world, uh, or at least half of it, um, for quite some time. Um, I will be back. Uh, Probably, unless I get kind of kidnapped in the Colombian wilderness somewhere, which could happen, in which case I'll be tapping you up for some ransom Um, (laughs) because you'll be in the right time zone at least. Um, But yeah, I'm gonna be taking a break from the show. Most of you people know this; we mentioned it, but like we thought it would be a good time to kind of think about goodbyes in films and and kind of endings in general, I guess. But first, we kind of it also occurred to us that this is roughly our 5th birthday is that right
1: yeah it's certainly around about the 5th anniversary of our first recording for for this version of the show we recorded a version of the show with a different title which we then had to relinquish because we mm. realized someone else had already used it
0: yeah shame
1: because it was a good title mm. not not massively dissimilar to this one to be fair but it yeah. was still it was still it was still a nice title it was the martini shot, if anyone's curious uh, you, yeah you can find it online
0: and that uh, podcast i don't think he's going anymore i mean that's isn't that just that's just a kicker
1: yeah it's the exact same thing as like uh, my blog a mighty fine blog i couldn't have a mighty fine blog dot blog spot because someone else had already got that and they posted literally three times <laughs> <laughs> in the time that uh, in the the like initial two years and that was it and like each, the second and third one were still haven't thought of anything to post yet uh it's like ah oh, there's such a waste of a uh, easy to search and to kind of say username or, although i eventually bought the domain in, domain and it was fine but mm-hmm. um yeah uh it's been about five years since we recorded the pilot episode of this which was a like a three hour <laughs> um three part end of year roundup with uh, our, our then co-host adam batty of mm-hmm. hope lies.com, uh, which was an ambitious way to start the show, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so it's been pretty much five years since we started this, this whole endeavor.
0: Yeah. And do you think we've learned anything?
1: Uh, I've learned that it's really hard to make a podcast. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> that it's hard to, that it takes a lot of preparation, that the technical side of it, once you work it out, is relatively straightforward but it's the figuring out part of it that's very difficult. <laughs> the yeah. constant failures and uh, lessons that you kind of have to learn as you gradually figure out how to edit and, you know, pacing and just the the uh, work that goes into that whole, whole side of it.
0: Mm. And it's, I mean, I would say, I mean, I don't want to point fingers at, but mm. I would say that it was markedly easier to edit when you were in the same country. And we could record it in the same room.
1: <laughs> yeah, because then it was just a case of having to edit out the tangents that go nowhere, such as in the... Uh, I think one of the first episodes you recorded, you decided you would have a quiz round.
0: <laughs> was that a thing?
1: That was a thing, yeah. You decided we'd have a quiz in the middle of the, the episode, and uh, me and Adam got literally none of them right. Oh, wow. Uh, and then it it you, you uh, cut it from the final edit, which is yeah. probably probably the right
0: choice that's probably because you guys were so shit at trivia yeah yeah pretty pretty mean, much it it's a, it's a small trade-off to know what you're talking about i guess <laughs> um whereas i'm pretty good at trivia <laughs> um but yeah i have no real in-depth knowledge yeah i i think it's been I mean, it's been a lot of fun to do uh it's always been a nice end to my week on a sunday night to so kind mm. of have that kind of Comfort I guess of sitting down and talking to a friend about films and you know having a nice time doing so, I feel like it i'm I'm always always uh surprised I guess by hearing that people listen to it mm-hmm. and people that we don't know listen to it um which is kind of unusual I think I kind of mentioned this to you before I kind of resisted talking about it on the podcast, but i'll drop it in now this is the last show but I did a Five and Dime event, you know, last month or two months ago, the uh, occasional cult film night that I run, co-run in, in Sheffield and have done for a while. We did a room, a room event. We, kind of, we had Greg Sestero, one of the actors, over to, to kind of talk about uh, his you know, his book, The Disaster Artist, which should be made into a film. And afterwards it was, you know, it was a lot of fun, it was a good evening, but afterwards a complete stranger just came up to me and said, I love your podcast. And at first I thought he said, I love your outfit. And I was really confused. <laughs> and then he was talking to me for a bit. And then I was like, that's really strange because he doesn't know me. And I don't really know how he knows me or what. Um, I don't know whether he just, like, he'd been to a screening before maybe and kind of looked it up. But, you know, it's pretty fucking awesome that that happens.
1: Yeah, it's, it's great when stuff like, or just people kind of messages on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And say, hey, just kind of started listening to the show and really like it. It's like, oh, that's it's nice that people are still discovering it five years in, and we're still doing something that people uh, think is is worth their time. Uh, and yeah, it's for me, it's always lovely to speak to you, especially you know the whole moving to another country thing. It's mm-hmm. nice to kind of get a, a brief kind of chance to touch base at home, uh, and and also I think it's it's also f- interesting because like you and I had only really just met when we started doing the podcast. Mm. But we'd been hanging out a little bit beforehand, like for a few months, going to to different press screenings and stuff, uh, including the press screening at, I think it was We Need to Talk About Kevin, where you just said, are we doing this fucking podcast or what? Because there've (laughs) been lots of prevaricating about whether or not we were going to, about when we would be available to all sit in a room together and record. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's quite, it's quite, fun that the the five years of the podcast from 2011 to now is actually uh kind of a an almost complete measurement of our friendship from Mm. like two people who loved films and would enjoy kind of talking about their favorite comedy bang bang bits to kind of people who've been got going part of an ongoing creative partnership for for five years i think that's that's quite quite a nice thing to have
0: Mm. oh absolutely or like, two people who met and started talking about their favorite comedy bang bang bits the two people who went to see comedy bang bang live a few weeks ago
1: yeah and that, that was a, a lovely kind of full circle thing as well that was a one of the the highlights of a, a wonderful trip back home for a for a couple of days mm. uh, even though it was just super surreal, being like, oh my God, all of these people have bodies. They're not just disconnected voices <laughs> assembled in a uh, a world of imaginary nonsense on my iPhone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you think that we've overseen like five interesting years in the world of film? I do remember that the first year we did the end of the year kind of show, we looked back at what was... Pretty much an amazing year for films. Mm. Um, that was really, really good. Has that kind of continued? Has it been just an, another five years in film with some good, some bad, or you know, have we seen kind of any movements that have kind of popped up? I do remember the very first year we did this; it was a very, it was a, it was a banner year for British films. Um, and you know, obviously they haven't stopped making British films, but was that the peak of that? While we, while we on the
1: air i guess i mean that definitely feels like the year when for whatever reason there was just a slew of really really interesting british films that all came out in a row because mm-hmm. there was tyrannosaur attack the block uh submarine submarine yeah that was a great one yeah so there, there were, yep we oh yeah it was like there were just a great and, and a variety of really interesting british films as well mm-hmm. uh and i kind of i i feel as if that has not Certainly British cinema, it hasn't been repeated. There have been lots of interesting British films in that time. Some of them made by the same director's kill list came out that year as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: But I think uh, part of the problem is that of those ones we've named, like Joe Cornish went to Hollywood, Andrew Hay went to Hollywood. Uh, It just seems as if uh, all of those people who made interesting films then left England to go and pursue other other, uh, endeavours. And I guess Ben Wheatley has kind of as well. With uh, free fire and, and high rise to an extent, uh, so I feel as if British film hasn't been as good in the five years since that. That momentum hasn't been maintained. But uh, doing this podcast every week ish, sort of every week uh, mm-hmm. for five years, uh, you know, it does mean having to remain plugged into what's coming out and and trying to stay up to date with the film, what what is good in film and TV. And I think uh, more than anything, that has made me uh be a little more circumspect about saying whether or not a year is a good or a bad year because i used to be very down on on years like if a film didn't if a year didn't have like 10 really great films be like oh this year was absolutely terrible but now i know oh chances are there are a lot of really good films that you will just end up having to kind of catch up with in january or february or something Mm. so uh so i'm more of like the mark cousins uh point of view of like every year is a good film year some are better than others but there's always like some good stuff it's just some years you may have to dig a little deeper for them like Mm. like this year is probably the worst for mainstream blockbuster entertainment certainly since we've been doing the show uh it's pretty pretty dire but uh there's i i have had no problem assembling like a top 10 or a top 20 of movies I've liked. It's just that almost none of them made any money.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, my friend sent me a, a link today to a blog, which was like uh, a guy who every year does like 15 films that you never heard of coming out this year. Mm. And I was like, all oh, right, whatever. I probably would have heard of some of these. And the list was kind of amazing. Like it was, I'd heard of two of the films. Um, I hadn't seen any of them. And I was like, shit, did this get released this year? This sounds fucking amazing. And I was like, unless you do see absolutely everything, there is there is something for everybody every single year. Mm. I mean, this year, for example, has been a really good year for documentaries. And I think we'll get to the end of uh, next week's show when we wrap up what, you know, look back at 2016. We'll probably see quite a few documentaries discussed then. Um, and this, that's... i don't know what that what that's down to i think maybe distribution models has changed a lot of those things were on netflix but there's like i mean i wonder whether that's it because you know especially something on netflix seems to be a new original documentary dropping every week
1: Mm, yeah and from like high profile names working on niche subjects that might struggle to get a cinematic release. I mean, 13th isn't a niche subject. It's a very big and important subject, but it's maybe not the sort of thing that would get put into, like, a huge number of theatres, but mm-hmm. is in, like, what, 50, 60 million homes right now? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's uh, an incredible thing to to think that Netflix offers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I think that's probably biggest change that we've gone through isn't it in the time that we've been doing it that Netflix and other streaming platforms have become uh, producers and Mm -hmm. you know and not just curators or programmers I guess actual makers and I think I mean I probably did have a Netflix account back then but it's that is a really huge change to see them those platforms being players like I mean, Manchester by the Sea is going to be very prominent in award season and that's, you know, an Amazon film.
1: Yeah, or like like five years ago if someone said web series, I think, oh like shot on a on a handheld camera, like a, a consumer grade digital camera, couple of comedians kind of playing around in a backyard or something in LA and now that's like, oh, House of Cards like that's a that's a web series <laughs> you know it's kind of completely changed the idea of how how these kind of streaming services work and how tv gets made and what the what the uh, discussion is around tv is drastically different and and also slightly around film but i think less so films for for whatever reason seem to become less of a cultural obsession when they debut on netflix
0: mm. yeah yeah i think that's that is by far the biggest development we've seen. The death of three D has been quite nice.
1: Oh God, yeah, we're not quite there, but it's you can kind of you th- you're going to start hearing the death rattle soon, hopefully.
0: Mm, yeah, like it's not even. We, we got uh, Rogue One tickets um, a couple of weeks ago, and just kind of organising it with my friends. Like six of us in a group, just doing it, and like I was like, "What works for everyone?" And literally everyone came back and just said, "Well, there's a two D screening." this time or whatever it was just like it's not even a consideration to even like go for it
1: yeah if if the only way i would see a 3d screening is like oh it's literally the last screening the last chance you get to watch this film before it goes away Mm. in any other situation i absolutely would refuse to see a film in 3d because i mean partly because it's just not that effective you know wearing glasses it doesn't really work that well for me uh but you know the idea of paying more for less uh, you know, just uh, just doesn't appeal for some reason.
0: Mm. Did we talk last week about, you went to see the Ang Lee film, didn't you? The the Billy's uh, walked around somewhere.
1: Yeah, B- um, Billy, Ling, Billy Lynn Stroll.
0: Yeah, um, that was, was that? did you go and see that in a weird frame rate?
1: Uh, I saw it in the regular, I saw it in 24 frames a second, but because it had clearly, obviously it was shot in one hundred and twenty frames, there were weird blurrings throughout. So every time the camera moved there, it it did look like you were watching motion smoothing on a big screen. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all the time, but certainly uh, it was most apparent during like just the intimate talking scenes between characters when he slight movement and, you know, it kind of look like Harper, hyper crisp and uh, disorientating uh, Mm -hmm. and, and like, being able to see all the pores in people's skin and everything. And it was just a very uh, disquieting experience that made me wonder why the hell anyone would want to make a movie that looks like that.
0: Mm, yeah. I always kind of wonder, like, what is it just pure pressure from the studios of wanting to push something? Because, I mean, Ang Lee is someone who probably, like, you and I will look at the results of that footage and say, I mean, we watch motion, we complain about motion smoothing all the time. Well, that looks shit angley is not thinking that looks quite good like, i think where's, it's, where's the pressure coming from
1: i think it would more be coming from angley just the sense of wanting to experiment with something like seeing that the tools are there and thinking this is something i want to play with and using the studio money to do it So uh, whether or not that's a good idea, I think, has been borne out by the fact the film has sunk like a fucking stone (laughs) Um, and no one will be talking about it ever. But, you know, I think I think it was more from him because I don't see why an adaptation of a not particularly well-known book that is a kind of bleak farce about the Iraq war would be the studio's choice for like trying out a a new technology. That doesn't seem purely like something that came from Ang Lee.
0: Mm, yeah yeah i mean we're warned often about the dangers of experimenting with drugs you know sexual promiscuity don't like experiment with different frame rates that's just (laughs) asking for trouble that's an awful thing to do it's never worked
1: it's 24 frames for a reason people
0: yeah it's because i mean scientifically it's because that's the uh, the speed at which our eyes can process the moving image. <laughs> and <laughs> you don't want to fuck with that too much.
1: Yeah, otherwise everyone just starts to get really, really sick. Or they get distracted by the fact that the lead in uh, Joe Alwyn, the lead in Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, seems to have, like, in the film, he seemed to have unusually pouty lips. And, like, the right. whole thing, it was just really, really distracting. Like, he every time the camera wasn't on him, he was just putting on just lip gloss with a trowel and it, i think it literally was just because it was such high def <laughs> high def uh, technique and it was super duper distracting mm. as was the fact that he played his relationship with his sister played by kristen stewart like they were kind of uh, jilted lovers but that was that was less the technology than just the fact that he's an untested actor who didn't quite seem to know how to play a kind of uh sibling relationship
0: mm. Oh, geez, we've just been going on and on about other things <laughs> uh, we're supposed to be talking about, uh, goodbyes in film. Um, we'll go straight in with the the kind of obvious, what's the biggest emotional gut punch that uh, you get from a film uh, when when a character or or someone in a film kind of departs the screen?
1: Uh, for me, like the first one when I was looking, trying to think of ones, was Casablanca. Mm-hmm that was literally the first one what's a famous goodbye <laughs> it's like oh the the moment from one of the most famous movies ever made probably that one and for me there what's what's gut punching about the fact that that rick uh, and ilsa have to separate and they can't be together is the fact that it's a noble sacrifice like they could stay together in casablanca or rick could go with her but instead he decides Against his kind of better judgment, or against his his nature and his own desires, to send her back to Paris with her kind of a strange husband, because they're much more needed for the war effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the gut punch, is because it is such a noble choice for him to kind of uh, avoid enriching his own life and his own kind of uh, and forsaking his own happiness in favor of a kind of a greater cause.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, on a similar note, although not really for any kind of wider cause, um, brief encounter.
1: Mm, yep, that was um, on my list as well.
0: Um, that's always a good one. Toy Story three. Mm. I mean, that you know, we we, we talk endlessly. Well, I do. I mean, it was something to think that I might have a problem with Toy Story three. I mean, kind <laughs> of the film that I literally cannot handle on any kind of emotional level. Um, but like, you know, the the, good, the end scene of that. I mean, obviously. Everyone uh, has the, the the shall we say uh, the smelting uh, scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is brutal. Um, and uh, my friend, he said that he was watching it with his five year old daughter, and he said that like he was really frightened about showing it to her because she didn't think she could take it. And he said that in the bit where they all realise they're going to die and they all put their hands out to hold each other's hands, like she just put her hand out to him. And hold it up, and I was like, "Oh God, that's brutal! I can't have kids, children. This is this will be too much for me." Um But the but in the end, when Andy realizes that the, the toys have essentially ended up at this girl's house, and he has to make the sacrifice of leaving them and donating them and passing all that on, is you know, as an idea in a children's film or a family a bit of entertainment, pretty goddamn mature.
1: Mm. yeah i think in terms of of goodbyes on a metaphorical level sometimes they're uh they're, they're metaphors for for death i think in a lo- lot of ways it's just about dealing with people passing out of your life in a permanent way uh mm-hmm. but in, in some cases it is literally just like, on a similar level just the about growing up and learning that you know there are moments when you have to say goodbye to childish things and things like that and or, or you know you have to accept that some relationships aren't meant to last or they are not meant to stay people that you you may love are not meant to stay in your life for whatever reason uh, and that is such one of the best uh, evocations of that that idea that he accepts that as much as he loves those toys and he has these great memories tied up in his relationship with them uh, there's they probably deserve to be with someone who's going to actually kind of play with them and put them to their intended purpose.
0: Mm. I think on a similar note from my childhood, um, someone like Stand By Me was always, mm. I think anything that plays with that idea of nostalgia and things, especially um, Stand By Me, which is obviously narrated from the present and there's this kind of a sense of fatalism about it anyway. And then when you kind of get the reveal that, um, River Phoenix's character didn't make it mm. um into adulthood um that always kind of struck me as a, a kind of a really uh kind of tough to stomach goodbye this is one that you 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 kind of felt completely powerless to stop you couldn't do anything about
1: yeah especially because there's that juxtaposition because the voiceover is playing over Chris and Gordy just kind of saying goodbye at the end of a day. And it's just the end of another summer day and they're going to see each other tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like like one of a thousand goodbyes. And it's just Richard Dreyfus just kind of like saying, you know, a fight broke out and he got stabbed in the neck. <laughs> He's kind of like, oh, this is this suddenly this innocent moment of just kind of like, hey, see you later has, has taken on this unbearable tragic nature is uh you know that there's there's such an amazing uh choice there on Rob Reiner's part to stage the movie that way and to uh cut out and to have the rest of the boys survive because uh the the big difference between the body the Stephen King short story and the movie is that uh, Gordy is the only one of the boys to make it to adulthood in the story Mm. the others the others die um one of them dies in a fire. I can't remember how, I think one dies in a car accident. So it's like, he's, he, uh, you know, there's some typical king brutality there. But the, uh, the the choice to change that in the film actually ends up being the more brutal choice because his death has much more meaning as, you know, thinking that everyone else got to grow old, but not him.
0: Plus also given an extra layer of the fact that River Phoenix plays their character. Yeah. Yeah, um,
1: that that extra meaning uh, took like five or six years to uh, be layered on.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, what other kind of uh, endings or farewells as metaphors for death uh, can we think about?
1: Uh, or Shane mm-hmm. is a very poignant one. Again, a noble sacrifice, the idea that this guy has kind of uh, helped forge a better world. Uh because he has helped clear the town of all of these cruel and evil people who are threatening all of these farmers, and he's allowed them to have a a better way of life as a result of it, but he's going to ride off into the desert and probably die of his injuries. Uh, But, you know, not confirmed, but probably that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, Similarly, again, another Western, The Searchers. Mm -hmm. uh, Very similar
0: endings, those two.
1: Yeah, where John Wayne, again the idea of this violent gunslinger much more hateful <laughs> in the searches than in Shane but uh you know this kind of hateful guy who has done this one good thing in recu- rescuing his his niece and returning her to civilization uh steps away from the family life that he knows he just can't have that he won't fit into the, the society that he has helped forge uh and it's a very that's the the uh, final shot of that of him standing in the doorway. Is you know one of one of many great images in John Ford's career, but that's probably the the best from a composition and metaphorical level.
0: Mm. I mean, it's very easy just to think of you know stagecoaches, you know, ploughing a dusty trail across Monument Valley, but you mm. know, you'll always think about uh, uh, John Wayne in the doorway um, when you think about John John Ford stuff. Um, mm. In terms of individual character goodbyes, been kind of thinking about this and kind of death scenes, I guess. So you know, spoilers and that. But one of my all-time favourites is Roy Batty's end scene in Blade Runner, mm. which is. I mean, it's very interesting because you know we spend this whole film kind of in a pursuit of these brutal kind of robots, these androids. And then at the moment, at the end of, a, of, of an android's life, we get this astonishing moment of of poetry and kind of beauty and uh, insight, I guess, which then kind of lends credence to the is Deckard a replicant uh, argument um, more so, but it then also just provides a really unusual character moment for someone who in another film would just be the thug.
1: Mm. Yeah, which absolutely. Is,
0: which is really great. And I think that, like, I, think, I, might, I might be right in thinking that Ruger Hauer was pushing for a lot of that. And he uh, everyone kind of laughs at Ruger Hauer because, well, I mean, they've seen his films. <laughs> which is, <laughs> you know, a nice way to say that the man uh, enjoys working,
1: mm-hmm. uh, as
0: in he will, he will do the films that Christoph Lambert turns down. Um, <laughs> which is <laughs> um, kind of the polite way of saying he'll do any old shit and as a result, has made you know dozens and dozens and dozens of films that are subpar. But he has always kind of tried to put something into it, and as a result, you, you get so many really weird things. And and like, I, I feel like he was he wrote those lines, I think maybe, or he uh, changed them, and like still no one knows what the fuck he was talking about.
1: Yeah, I think the story I've heard is that he wrote a lot of it himself. It's kind of like the Orson Welles in Third Man kind of showing up and writing his own scene stealing speech more or less mm-hmm. uh yeah no one has a clue what the hell sea beams are off the shoulder of all right <laughs> what mm-hmm. he's talking about but it is it like you say it's very poetic and it's very the fact that you don't know what it means kind of deepens the tragedy that like he's clearly seen amazing things in his five years of life or however long the, the androids live for uh and then it's all lost like tears in rain
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's like a really cool moment, and it's what I think of if I think of Blade Runner. Weirdly, if I think of Blade Runner, I think of uh, eating uh, Chinese food in a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of neon, neon, neon kind of neon-drenched, rainy world, uh, and that scene at the end. Oh, yeah. and um, Harrison Ford having his fingers broken, which always used to really, really make me feel ill.
1: Yeah, the, I know that they do, like, movie and food-themed screenings at various cinemas, you know, like, oh, you'll watch... Pulp fiction and have like burgers and things like that. I do feel like Blade Runner and Chinese food would be a really good combo. Mm,
0: but you got to, you got to watch Blade Runner standing up in the rain outside.
1: Get on it, Secret Cinema.
0: Yeah, the Secret Cinema are doing uh, Moulin Rouge, aren't they? Next year Valentine's Day, uh, in which I can only assume everyone gets syphilis <laughs> after <laughs> drinking too much absinthe and being uh, irresponsible uh, in a sexual way. And
1: just screaming. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Do you like
1: Miller Rouge? Yeah, I think so. It's a film that uh, I took took about five or six attempts for me to actually make it through, mm-hmm. because the opening, what, fifteen minutes is uh, assaultive, uh, and a level that really only like I don't know irreversible <laughs> ha- has for like a film being. As off-putting as possible in its opening minutes, uh, and just kind of daring you to continue watching it, whilst also being kind of a garish, kind of candy floss confection. Um, mm. But yeah, no, like if, one, if you once I kind of like had got used to the idea of like, oh, that's the tone it's going for. This is what the movie is. Uh, I kind of settled down for it. I thought, oh, this is this is a lot of fun, and it is a you know a unique vision. Like mm-hmm. no one else has tried it
0: yeah and it's it's one of those films that I've I've seen quite a few times but I haven't seen it for ages you know he's kind of went through a bit of a stage of watching it um kind of semi-regularly and I, I had a similar problem actually the, the beginning is is quite something it's mm-hmm. like having kind of handfuls of glitter aggressively thrown in your mouth <laughs> for, for like 20 minutes um, but uh, you know, if I think of that film, I think of Jim Broadbent doing like a virgin, and I think mm-hmm. of uh, the amazing tango arrangement of Roxanne, yeah, um, which is pretty remarkable. Some of the some of the stuff they 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 go for in that they really go for, and um, uh, most of it sticks. Um, speaking of what does and doesn't stick, what films can we think of that really? Balls up their endings. Well, I'll, I'll kind of I'll get the ball rolling with one of the most criticised endings of, of recent memory is the last Lord of the Rings film because it mm. just seemed to keep ending. Um, and we kind of if you kind of watch the DVD and stuff, they kind of other special features they address that. And Peter Jackson says, "Well, you know, we could have made it an awful lot longer. We had to, we'd actually shot each individual character or what they were doing now." Um, which, you know, that would have been awful. Um, But, you know, it does kind of drag on and on and on. And in the book, it kind of, the time is slightly more compressed and in the book has a much better emotional gut punch when uh, Frodo says to Sam, you know, we saved the world, but not for me, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a really great moment in the book. And It's really kind of devastating on one level, but in the film it's just kind of glossed over and we get the... Look at the the Grey Havens bit, which you uh, never actually seems to have any emotional impact for me.
1: No, I think mean, it's the same for me. I think it's the, in some ways, it's the exact opposite of Stand by Me, where you uh, narrow the focus and makes the the kind of the singular look at what a character is doing more powerful. Like mm-hmm. reducing the focus to only be about those guys. I don't know. It just feels as if it's uh, just kind of a little tawdry, maybe.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah possibly and it's I mean he is going off to die isn't he uh, in mm. the, the you know the Grey Havens or whatever which sounds like a lovely holiday park by the way um, but yeah I never yeah I never really feel like he is uh, I i don't know whether I'm just so exhausted of the previous nine hours of film <laughs> um, that for somehow it doesn't ring true to me
1: just like get on the bloody boat
0: yeah, yeah, go already. And it's, uh, a, it's a it's a weird way, isn't it, as well that they do that in the film that you, you you know you lose Frodo, and then all of a sudden the story's about Sam for the last bit, and you're like, oh, this just feels off now.
1: Mm. Yeah, I was I just thought of um, a film that meta textually the ending makes a lot of sense and is actually very satisfying, but in terms of the narrative of the movie doesn't make a huge amount of sense is the end of furious 7
0: all right uh, well i haven't seen this so you know what happens
1: spoilers uh well basically obviously Fat furious 7 uh was delayed because of the death of Paul Walker and in the film his character doesn't die but at the end of the movie he does drive away like from mm-hmm. the group and it's implied that you know oh, he's going to kind of start a family life and everything but like in the film, it's like, oh, he's just decided to get in his car and drive away. And then suddenly he, Vin Diesel's driving up alongside him and they're kind of lov- looking at each other very long, lovingly. And the whole of it is kind of staged essentially as the cast and the crew and all these people who have known each other for 14 years and have made all these films together saying goodbye to someone they deeply cared about. So metatextually, it's a very moving thing. And you know that all of these kind of heartfelt lines that Vin Diesel's character, uh, Dom, is saying, are are meant for Paul Walker, the person. But in the kind of the narrative of the film, it's just like, you'll see him again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, he's not, you know, he's just going for a drive. You know, what's the big deal? And like, uh, there's one of those things where I think, okay, it makes a lot of sense, people watching it in 2015. But when, you know, people are watching it in MoMA in 2030. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a terrifying the fun-
0: thought.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, or when when people are kind of like watching it separated from it and don't realize that that Paul Walker died during the production, it'll pr- it'll probably play really weirdly. I was mm. just kind of like, why is he going? Why why is everyone so sad that he's decided to go for a drive? Uh, and so, uh, it's one of those things that works really really well in context, but you kind of feel as if once you know we're we're far removed from the current time period and the context becomes fuzzier and lost. Uh, it'll be, it will just, it might seem kind of baffling to people. Mm.
0: Just like in a similar note of, you know, Oliver Reed in Gladiator, mm-hmm. Um, If you don't know that he died during production, you'll just be really confused as to why there's a very unconvincing CGI Oliver Reed in yeah. <laughs> one scene, and then the character exits very suddenly for no reason.
1: Or season three of The Sopranos with Nancy Marchand.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, this- that is so strange, isn't it?
1: Yeah, this eerie, dreamlike sequence of Tony kind of talking to his mother, who's not really matching his eye line and doesn't quite seem to fit into her chair. Uh, And then suddenly it's like, oh, she died. What? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. um, Yeah, it's a very it's a very uh, strange one that uh, on a similar note, and this is one that's like genuinely kind of heart wrenching. Um, there was a sitcom in the nineties the called news radio, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, had people like uh, Dave Foley who was in the star and, and Phil Hartman, who was one of the other main characters. And he, um, you know, he died in between production on the, I think fourth and fifth seasons of it. The fifth one being the, the, the final one. And, the oh, i think the season opening of the 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 last season of the show basically begins with the characters learning that his character uh, had passed away uh, of a heart attack and the whole episode is the characters saying bye to this character to, the, to to the character that Hartman played bill but it's really the actors saying goodbye to someone who was taken from them in kind of like horrifying and tragic circumstances Uh, And it's like a a deeply moving episode because you can tell that some of the actors are really struggling to keep it together. But it's one of those things where eventually people will, you know, people will forget who Phil Hartman Hartman is or they'll forget the, the, the circumstances of his death. And like, if they watch that show in reruns, it's going to be so jarring to go from like this kind of wacky, zany show that I think the year previously or the two years before had done a whole episode set in the distant future where they were in space, and they had all of these Star Wars jokes to the saddest half hour of any sitcom ever made.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, they did that with. Oh, what was the name of that show now with um, John Ritter in it? Oh, uh, uh, te- eight, was-
1: uh, eight simple rules for dating my daughter.
0: Yeah, uh he. he I think he only did a couple of seasons, and then he died at the end of the first season, and then the, they kind of just changed the name of it to Eight Simple Rules and. I remember seeing the first episode and it was it was just a kind of really grave episode about the, they they treated the character's death in the, the show the exactly the same way. He died in very similar circumstances and they kind of just dealt with it in the show. Um and then they brought David Spade in, which never works. <laughs> um, and James Garner as well. James Garner and David Spade. Um and then the show was promptly cancelled because mm. it wasn't very good. Um but yeah, it's it's strange in television that you get the opportunity to uh, grow with changing casts for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, I, I I was trying to think of shows that did a really good job of saying goodbye to characters. And to, the two that came to mind it, it, straight away were kind of perennial favourites of ours, Parks and Recreation and mm-hmm. Friday Night Lights. Yeah. Because uh, Parks and Rec was on for seven years and various members of the cast left usually because uh they became really successful and they wanted to do other things uh and and like when characters left they would they would make a big show of it basically you know they would dedicate a whole episode to rob lowe and rashida jones leaving to go and do other things and it would be uh, a really big deal which is why it was really weird when then like Anne perkins came back like three episodes later (laughs) For just kind of a visit, but you know they would, uh, they they you know it was it was a big deal, uh, and they they kind of gave them a big uh, a big send off. Although not in the case of uh, Mark Brandanowitz, who (laughs) like left kind of quietly at the end of the second season and was never spoken of again.
0: Mm, Um, He was unceremoniously dispatched to uh, the uh, Department of Pawnee's I can't believe he was in this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, instantly forgotten. Like, mm. uh, did you have a love interest? Nope.
0: Do you remember um, that episode of uh, in Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson is trying to keep his uh, kid uh, in a quiet environment and he goes upstairs and he finds the floors that are empty and they're being renovated and he decides to do all the renovation himself. Mm-hmm, I yeah. always think it would be really funny if Mark Brandano was just on his laptop up there just, <laughs> just tapping away <laughs> and that's where he works now.
1: Uh, that would be, That, yeah, that would have been the best way to kind of bring him back because i think when he left they were like oh you know he works in you know he's going into the private sector people go from the public to the private sector all the time maybe he'd come back i think that was their kind of way of saying yeah paul schneider doesn't want to be on the show anymore and Mm. uh, for whatever reason we don't want him back but we'll leave it open just in case um and like friday night lights because they uh you know nearly got cancelled at various points and went to uh a, they kind of split the cost between diff- two different networks and the budgets got lower, the episode numbers got lower, and also because characters were aging out of being high schoolers, they would, you know, that they would often send people away. And like I think the third season, there's like a run of episodes where they're saying bye to a character like every other episode. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, Street's gone to New York to become an agent. Okay, bye. Uh, you know, all of these characters are just kind of uh uh, uh, uh smashes you know he's got his scholarship he's going to play for texas union will only hear him like being referenced in kind of background dialogue of sports broadcasts in the future uh, uh uh you know and all this stuff is going on and they always did it really well you know they treated people leaving as kind of a significant thing even if uh they may come back to dylan every so often but you know the idea of leaving your hometown And the people that you've grown up with to go out into the kind of wider world was treated with like a a real kind of seriousness and solemnity that uh, was one of the reasons why that show was kind of deeply rewarding is it cared so much about his characters that when one of them left, uh, it it was a genuinely a big deal. Mm, Absolutely. Except in the case of Santiago or whatever his name is, the guy who lived with Buddy Garrity in season two, (laughs) Mm, literally never spoken of again
0: he's probably working with mark brandon somewhere <laughs> uh, in the, the the kind of the forgotten department of the forgotten the there should office, be an
1: nbc sitcom just about all the characters on their shows that people stop yeah. talking
0: about. <laughs> yeah the office the american office had a great goodbye for michael scott's character mm. um but then ruined it by carrying on for two more seasons <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, because that was because I I drifted away from The Office for a while and I came back for that one, and it was genuinely very heartwarming. But then it wasn't even like a season finale, was it? They had a few more episodes, two thirds
0: -thirds of the way through that season,
1: yeah. So they then had a few more episodes to kind of uh gin up interest of like, oh, they're looking for a replacement, oh, Ricky Gervais and Jim Carrey and Will Ferrell are all in this episode, and it's like, this is really. This really feels as if you're reaching. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, they continued to reach and strain the premise for another 40-something episodes.
0: Mm. It would have been cool if, uh, I don't want to kind of flog this dead horse of a joke, but uh, the new manager of Dunder Mifflin could be Mark Brandanowitz, Because, <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I seem to remember that, you know, there, it was going to be a crossover at one point with Rashida Jones's character being the, the link between the two. Mm. Um, but Mark Brandanowitz he could be the... Rosetta Stone to understanding NBC's <laughs> uh, comedic universe. I mean, he could turn up in community, guest lecturer.
1: <laughs> T- telling people about drawing? What was he? He was yeah. an architect, wasn't he, he?
0: was. I mean, they do draw on a basic level, Ed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the more complicated thing, he's not just like, you know, knocking out a, a still life on the back of a pack <laughs> packet. He's, he's, you know, he's in town planning.
1: I mean, yeah, that means you just draw doors as like a little uh it's kind of nine uh, forty five degree angle. Yeah, just yeah, right yeah.
0: front elevation on it.
1: Yeah, you don't even have to use colours.
0: Yeah, it's all blue in it. Yeah. 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 Any other kind of good movie or television goodbyes or exits you can think of?
1: Uh I mentioned the third man earlier. I really like in terms of uh brutal goodbyes. Mm-hmm. The uh the uh, Joseph Cotton's character and uh, the character who is like Orson Wells's girlfriend uh not be her not acknowledging him after uh, harry lyme's funeral uh just walking down that tree lined lane in vienna and ignoring him completely as he stands off to the side is uh yeah one of the kind of the bleakest goodbyes in cinema of just mm. saying of, of of saying you are dead to me without actually saying anything
0: mm. yeah yeah i haven't seen it though man in many years um i'm just going to take your word for it that, that happens yeah, um, it's it's
1: kind of referenced in a in a big way in Miller's Crossing as well. Uh, uh, Miller's Miller's Crossing has kind of two really good goodbyes. There's one that directly does that, but then there's also like Gabriel Byrne and Albert Finney parting ways after having been separated for the whole movie, and then Albert Finney realizing that Gabriel Byrne was working for him the whole time uh, and was had his best interest in heart at heart. But the kind of the bad blood between them over his abandonment, meaning that they, they're clearly never going to have the same relationship they ever had again mm-hmm. uh, is a kind of a, a deeply sad uh, end to a relationship in and in a deeply kind of melancholy and brutal movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a, a good, i really already a good well, kind of a goodbye. Uh, and an ending is the ending to Five Easy Pieces. Mm. Um, where uh, Jack Nicholson's character, Bobby Dupie, Dupie, Dupie uh, I think that's how you say his name, um, essentially reverts back to the only thing he understands and knows, which is running off.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and, and that is how he exits the film. And I always thought that, that was, you know, a, an amazingly kind of true way of dealing with that character because it would have been so shit to have some kind of redemption or change when that's not what the film's about.
1: Mm. Uh, I had I actually had two documentaries on here, which are, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of fictional movies, but uh, I found, thought of two, you know, kind of real life uh, stories that act as goodbyes, which are The Last Waltz, mm-hmm. which was the band basically saying goodbye as, as kind of a, a, fu- a functioning unit, and uh, Shut Up and Play the Hits, which was lcd sound system doing the same thing although less permanently (laughs) because they reformed like five years later but uh, those are both ones which i think are are kind of celebratory goodbyes of acknowledging that you know these people have worked together for a long time they love each other they love their fans but reaching a point where they feel like you know we need to do other things uh, Mm. and going out in kind of a a blaze of glory and a goodbye that is You know, hugely celebratory and saying, like, hey, you know, we're not going to work together anymore, but here are all the great things that we did. Here's all the great music and all the good, a celebration of all the good times.
0: Mm. Although The Last Waltz is kind of the opposite of that because they all (laughs) hated each other. Yeah. And uh, Neil Diamond's in it. Coked up. Yeah. Coked up Neil Diamond. Uh, Well, Neil Young is visibly coked up. Neil Diamond is Neil Diamond's just there and no one can understand why he's there. Um, and yeah, everyone hates Robbie Robinson. And yeah, none of the rest of the band wanted to stop being in the band. It was just Robbie Robinson. They wanted to go and do something else. Um, but the, perform- was, the performances the have that feel
1: of like, you know, of being celebratory, even if, yeah, no one likes Robbie Robinson then or now.
0: Yeah. Well, except
1: yeah. Scorsese, obviously, who was like his roommate at the time.
0: Yeah, they were they were kind of uh, each other's homies there. But there's uh, I mean, it's it's a great concept. There's a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, I always uh, enjoyed Van Morrison's part in that when he does uh, Caravan. That's mm. a great bit of that film. Yeah, um, but, Muddy Waters
1: yeah. is is good in it. Although, like you say, his presence does make Neil Diamond's even more incongruous.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, if you watch the last waltz, there's uh, the Muddy Waters bit. Is noticeable because it's only it's all done in one shot, and it's because um, like if you look at the the um, the crew for that film, it's got like eight cameramen, but all the cameramen are it's a who's who of like director's of photography from the seventies, like like really big names, and they were all Vilmos
1: shooting. Zygmunt.
0: He he would have been in there definitely. Um, Michael Chapman probably all all the big ones. Um, and they were all doing shooting 16 mil film or 35 mil film, what it was. But you know, you can only shoot eight or nine minutes, and then shoot an live performance, and it was roughly choreographed. But everyone was just burning the motors out on the camera, and there was just one person who had the camera rolling for the muddy waters performance, and they just kept the camera stationary for the whole thing, <laughs> and got pretty much the whole performance in one go, which was good because. Um, Levon Helm and uh, well, the rest of the band led by Levon Helm said they would not play the gig if Muddy Waters wasn't included. Um, because they were protesting Neil Diamond's inclusion <laughs> in the lineup, and Neil Diamond, I think, was only in it because Robbie Robertson had produced one of his albums. I think,
1: right? Okay,
0: um, it's I mean, I love the band, um, and I loved The Last Waltz when I saw it for the first time the more you read about it, the worse it gets. <laughs> the, 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 more, the more it's like looking at, oh, this family looks really happy in this portrait. Oh, no, they're cannibals. <laughs> I mean, they hate each other. Um, and yeah, it's not particularly pretty. Anything else on goodbyes before we bid farewell to this episode and this idea? Uh,
1: a great goodbye that, that I really love is the end of Before Sunrise. Mm. Both because it's it's kind of really beautiful in terms of the 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 individual movie itself which is jesse and uh celine kind of saying goodbye at the train and like the and jesse something at the last minute saying like oh it's you know all this stuff about we're never going to see each other again it's bullshit we should meet here again in is it a year's time or two years time they they, they kind of set a a deadline for when they're going to see each other again and they say they're going to see each other and you know there's this this kind of hopefulness it's like oh you know these two crazy kids they're going to see each other again and, and it leaves you that uh sense of uncertainty about what's going to happen and so in like in terms of its it's, its the, the individual film there's all that going for it but then the ending of that has was subsequently changed by the fact they did a sequel saying oh no they never met <laughs> they didn't meet up uh and they're kind of meeting up again seven years later uh or, or nine years later uh and uh i think it's 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 kind of really wonderful seeing how the subsequent installments in that series have have made that ending even more kind of poignant uh, as the relationship between those characters has been deepened uh, over, you know, kind of an 18-year period.
0: Mm, yeah, they do mention it, don't they? I think in Before Sunset does one of them say, did you go to that place we said with me? And one of them yeah. did and one of them didn't, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I want to say Jesse went there and and Celeste, uh, Celine didn't.
0: Mm. They're not going to do a fourth
1: one of that, are they? Uh, I get the feeling that they won't just because Criterion are putting out the trilogy, mm. and and the the fact that they're referring it to as to it as the before trilogy kind of suggests a level of finality to it.
0: Well, like uh, before dawn or before twilight, um, and they're vampires.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm kind of I I don't know I'm kind of uh, ambivalent about that. The idea of them not doing a Thor because I, I you know I I do like the idea of it being like seven up and they keep coming back every nine years and making a movie and seeing how those characters' lives progress, but at the same time they've made three films which kind of complement each other perfectly, and it's it's that in itself is so miraculous that uh, coming back for it would be would seem to be kind of foolhardy.
0: Mm, yeah, uh, I agree. But anyway, we won't be foolhardy and keep going back to the well. We will wrap this up now and kind of uh, lead into next week's end of year show. So our penultimate show was goodbyes and next week we'll be wrapping up the year, which would be interesting because a lot's happened. And a lot of, like, I mean, obviously it's been a dreadful year for everyone concerned. Um in films, it's been kind of fascinating to watch because there's been not a lot of uh, joy in the film world either.
1: <laughs> yeah well, at least uh not in movies that cost above 100 million dollars
0: yeah, yeah yeah i mean who wants to see anything that costs less than that even billy someone's halftime Joe. i don't know <laughs> what it is, cause i'm never gonna get the name of that one right what have we got for recommends this weekend
1: i'm gonna recommend a tv show that i have been catching up on uh a show that a lot of people have been well not really a lot of people a few people have said it's great and but it doesn't seem to get in kind of talking about in the big conversation other than a few people saying it's great which is the show American Crime Mm -hmm. which is an anthology series created by John Ridley who wrote 12 Years a Slave and is not related to American Horror Story or American Crime Story even though it follows it essentially has the same structure as American Horror Story in that it's the same cast who come back every year and tell a an original uh an original crime uh it stars amongst others timothy hilton and felicity huffman and you know a, a bunch of people in various kind of small roles and it is maybe the most austere show on like network television i've ever seen it's incredibly bleak and uh in, in its treatment of human emotions of the stories in particular you know the first season is all about a murder that takes place where a kind of a young uh white couple are you know the 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 man is killed and the woman is kind of uh, raped and put into a coma and this erase uh, awakens kind of uh racist feelings in the mother of of the the the, the dead man played by huffman and but also there's all this stuff to do with kind of class and gender in in uh, between the various characters and it ha- provides this kind of ca- kaleidoscopic view of all the different characters and and families who are affected by this crime and uh, in doing so it's it's kind of a kind of a state of the nation address really about about America told through a specific criminal act and its aftermath and uh, john ridley who directs some some of the episodes and is kind of uh, the, the big driving force behind the writing uh, does a great job of balancing all of these different viewpoints never making any character into too much of a a villain or too much of a hero which is a real kind of balancing act with huffman's character who is obviously kind of a grieving mother who wants to have just justice done by her son but is also unabashedly racist uh, and doesn't hide that fact and uh, it's it's just a wonderfully written wonderfully complexed complex drama and uh, you know two seasons of have, have come and gone they're both really great a third one's coming next year uh, and I'm really excited to see how Ridley maintains that balancing act going forward and, and how long he and his cast can uh, can keep this particular trick going because uh yeah it's hard as we've seen with with things like true detective and american horror story it's very hard to come up with original stories every year even if you have kind of the same cast to fall back on
0: Mm. what's that on Ed? where can we get that
1: you can watch it on netflix it airs on abc you know when when the show uh, is actually broad being broadcast it airs on abc but it's on american netflix now uh, and uh yeah, possibly uk netflix i think it's, it's re- fairly easy to find
0: okay uh we'll check it out uh if you've got time uh i'm gonna recommend a film that uh i suspect won't make our uh, end of year list next year but it'll be kind of up there on the outskirts of the outliers but i thought i'd talk about it now because we probably will not have time to talk about it next week it's uh the jeff nichols film midnight special mm. which we uh trailed I think at the, in the preview episode because we're always excited that Jeff Nichols has got a new film out and he had two out this year uh, both very different, he had Loving Out uh, recently which I believe you saw and liked like very much which is yep. um, perhaps more in line with what Jeff Nichols normally does but this is uh, a science fiction film uh, that he made which very much has a kind of 80s Amblin vibe to it um, about uh, a kind of pair of uh, I guess it would be harsh to call them criminals but Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton who are on the run um with uh, a 7-year-old boy 8-year-old boy um who has mysterious powers and they appear to have escaped from a kind of a cult called the ranch and without going into it too much there is an awful lot of mystery um and an awful lot of revelations which are super interesting and I kind of said to you before we went on that I really didn't know where it was going right up until the end, which is, you know, a rare thing. Um, because you normally kind of twig at some point where it's going and, you know, how well it disguises it is how much you enjoy the film. Whereas this, you know, I was completely willing to be taken where it went and I very much enjoyed where it went and it Jeff Nichols has always been a direct drive like Shotgun Stories is a really, really good film and you know, take shelter uh, is great as well. And uh, I can't wait to see Loving, but this film is different for him because it's uh, slightly bigger scale, uh, working with a lot of effects. And I kind of jokingly said to you, he could, you know, he he could have done Episode Nine instead of Colin Trevorrow, who is the one I'm not particularly keen on doing Episode Nine. But um, I, you know, you know, he could do a big film if if the chance came up but in the way that Ryan Johnson has, perhaps. But then he also seems completely happy and you know working with you know small budgets and midnight specials. If if he only does one film, which is a bit more expensive, then we've got a really interesting, unique film there that you know everyone should see. It's really, really good, and it's got like a great cast: Michael Shannon, Joel Edgerton, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Adam Driver. It's got Sam Shepard in it. Uh, what's the guy who's in uh, the night of Bill Camp? Bill Camp, he's in it. Yeah. It's just. Yeah, it's a really good film and uh, it's on, out on VOD and DVD or Blu-ray, however you choose to uh, to ingest this shit now, <laughs> stick it in your eyes, um, but not the kid's eyes because they're weird, he's got weird powers, he shoots light out of his eyes. So that's it, thanks everyone for listening, as always, if you've enjoyed the show please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM and if you've really enjoyed the show leave us a little review, why not? You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook as well. We'll be back next week uh, with our end of year show, which will be great. And it will be my last show for quite some time and it will all be sad and everything. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.
0: And goodbye from me.